0: Welcome to our very first episode of Arctic 360's Breaking the Ice. We are really excited to get this going. My name is Paris.
1: And my name is Rebecca. And we are your co-hosts. This week, we had the opportunity to speak with Debbie Atuk and Clint Davis about Indigenous Development Corporations. For our listeners who may not know, Indigenous Development Corporations are economic and business development arms of an Indigenous government.
0: These for-profit, community-owned corporations aim to provide financial support to advance community interests. Indigenous development corporations play a major role in driving indigenous economic advancement through business development, employment, and community-based projects.
1: Debbie is an Inupiaq, who is the CEO of Kootenewoo Corporation. Kootenewoo was born as the result of the Alaska Native Clean Settlement Act of 1971, Debbie's work focuses on helping Alaska Native and Native American communities develop their businesses and improve their economic well-being through prudent investment strategies, strong representation, and advocacy.
0: Clint and Inuk from Labrador served for over 11 years as the Chair of Board of Directors for the Nunatiovit Group of Companies, which is the economic arm of Nunatiovit Government. Kent Davis, once being the vice president of Indigenous Banking at TD, is now the president and CEO of Nunisi Corporation.
1: I think a great way to sort of start is just if you could both tell us a little bit more about your respective corporations. Um, and how your corporation sort of differs from maybe what could be perceived as a more traditional corporation or a
2: regular corporation. Just by way of introduction, my name is Debbie Atak. I'm originally from Nome, Alaska. I was raised in Nome and Anchorage. My dad is uh, King Eat Mute. It's a group of people from the village of Wales, or King Again is how we say it in the King Eat Mute dialect, which I've been studying with my dad for the last couple of years. I have been working in the world of Alaska native corporations, business development with tribes, um, for the last few years, pretty seriously for the last, I guess, seven or eight years now. Um, prior to this, I would, I've worked in finance. I've worked in independent film and, um, and have had work, uh, in startups on the East coast. So, uh, Last year I was working on a, on a big project for a private equity fund that the Alaska Permanent Fund Corporation has uh, instituted. They have begun to do direct investment within the state with a dedicated fund for private equity. Uh, and they were looking for an in-state manager, um, and I worked with a, a fellow Native American from. Um, uh, tribe down south um, who has experience with investment advising we brought in a team that got one of the mandates they split this mandate into two so there's 200 million dollars of dedicated funds um, for private equity investment in the state of the state's money so and that's the first time they've ever done that that led to me having the opportunity to get a job here in Juneau, where i am now uh, i work for a corporation called kuznuwu uh, Kootznuwu is uh, a clinket word, and it means, means fortress of the bears. Um, the people of uh, the village of Angoon formed this corporation under the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act. And these corporations, uh, the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act created over 200 village corporations and 13 regional corporations, which are similar to corporations, any for-profit corporation, in that they are profit-seeking, but they have an inherent social mission, which makes them very different. Their shareholders are all, uh, they were all originally Alaska natives. These were corporations that were formed to transfer land and wealth to the indigenous people of Alaska as um, a way to, and I quote, extinguish all land claims of the indigenous people of Alaska. So, corporations were, the state was basically divided up into 13 regions and then within each region there were village corporations associated and there are these complicated relationships between these corporations because within a region, a village corporation will have surface rights to their land that they received in transfer, and the um, regional corporation will have subsurface rights, which can sometimes work together, but sometimes they can become um, at odds. So not to take things off too far of a tangent, but just to say that Alaskan Native corporations have a, uh, I think, a twofold mission, that is to be um, maybe threefold. The profit-seeking, they have to, maintain an existence in perpetuity to keep the lands they're stewards of the lands that were received in INCSA that's what we call the um, land claims act that means that we're always looking for ways to continually innovate we can't ever let this corporation go under whichever corporation it is because they all have land associated with it and there are accommodations within the act actually in the amendments in 1991 for when that might happen but, you know, the goal is to always keep these corporations active and affluent enough, ideally to be dividends, um, be um, paying dividends out to their shareholders, but at the very minimum to always exist to be uh, holders of the land.
0: Yeah. And we'll go back um, to the topic of shareholders. But uh, Clint, if you uh, would like to answer the same question about your corporation and your, your background and your trajectory.
3: Sure. So I'm uh, Clint Davis. I'm an Inuk from Labrador. So Labrador is on the east coast of the country. My community connection is um, to Nunatsibut, which was the last Inuit land claim to be settled in Canada. And it was settled in 2005. Um, I was born in Goose Bay, which I like to call (laughs) as the capital of Labrador, which is a town of like 7,000 people. Um, But my dad is from the Inuit community called Prigalet, which is the most southern community of the region. Uh, prior to being the CEO for NUNASI, I was the chair of the Nunatsubu group of companies, um, which is an Inuit Development Corporation for Labrador for about 11 years, um, overseeing our investments in a variety of different industries, ranging anywhere from construction to retail, to transportation, uh, marine, as well as fishing and, and so on. My career has been, uh, even though I'm a lawyer by trade, I went back to school and um, had a focus on uh, business and the interaction between business and government, as well as with a focus around finance. And so I headed up um, Indigenous banking for two major financial institutions in Canada. First, the Bank of Montreal, and then secondly, as vice president for Indigenous banking at TD Bank. Sandwich in between that, I was the CEO of the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business, which is a nonprofit and essentially a chamber of commerce for Indigenous and non-Indigenous business to come together, collaborate and identify opportunities to create value. So, I've been involved in Indigenous business issues, I've served in the federal government as a senior advisor to two different cabinet ministers, so I have an experience around the public sector, the nonprofit sector. I joined the nonprofit sector in 2008 when our revenues dropped by about 35%. But, uh, but then also in the private sector and certainly with a huge focus on, on Indigenous business. Um, I joined Nunacy about a year ago. Um, in the next couple of days, it'll be a year uh, just prior to the pandemic. Nunisi is a unique corporate structure for... Inuit business and indigenous businesses and development corporations across the country. Nunisi was established in 1976, so it's the oldest Inuit Deaf Corp in Canada. And it was established um, as a way to create a mechanism to ensure that Inuit would be able to participate economically, financially, entrepreneurially, um, in activity that was to be expected through the resolution of land claims. But over a period of time, as other Inuit uh, uh, claims started to be settled and uh, respective development corporations started to really grow in financial success and um, and authority, uh, NUNASI started to really take some time and look at what it was all about and to see how it was going to be um, uh, adding value for its shareholders. And in this case, the NUNASI shareholder was, and we're going through a process now of changing this, but it was um, uh, the Nunacy Trust, the Nunacy Trust, the beneficiaries of the trust were all Inuit beneficiaries under the Nunavut land claim. So um, right now our, pro- our uh, structure is that we're owned by three Inuit regions across Nunavut. We have uh, a, a board of directors that represents um, the three Inuit regional development corporations as well as the three Inuit regions, so it's a, it's a significant voice that's pan-territorial. We, uh, I've been brought on board to assist in the process to really refocus Nunisi and, uh, and really uh, provide a laser approach to the industries that's going to participate in to ensure that it is adding value and not crowding out the activity of the other regional dev corps. So uh, we just had a new strategy that was um, approved by our board in December and for the next three years, that's what we're uh, doing, is building out a team and embarking upon the execution of that strategy. So, Nakamek.
0: And so both of you guys uh, had mentioned the shareholding structure um, within both of your corporations. Um Clint, you also mentioned uh, trustees. And so we were wondering if um, you guys could elaborate on who are the shareholders uh, specifically in your corporations and, you know, what is the structure and if because there are notions of like birth, um, birth shareholder, birthright shareholders. It's a it's a really unique aspect of um, uh,
3: Indigenous Development Corps that we want to understand a bit more. Debbie, go ahead. Because you have a very unique structure. I, I, actually, it's intriguing.
2: Yeah, this is, this is an interesting uh, opportunity to have this conversation. I, I have to say that I knew zero about these development corps, uh, dev corps, as, as you call them in uh, Canada. So I'm, I'm taking notes, you may have noticed, because I, I want to make sure that there's, if anything comes up that we're not doing, that I uh, can capture it. So uh, so I, I forgot to mention that I'm actually on the board of directors for the Bering Straits Native Corporation, which is one of the regional corporations. So I serve as the uh, treasurer on that board, I'm on the executive committee, and, um, and I'll, speak, I'll speak from that perspective. So with that corporation, we have nearly 7,000 shareholders, uh, which is uh, quite a few more than when the corporation was uh, established, when it was first established. Everyone was required to have been born on or before December 31st, 1971, right? So there are people like in my family, my youngest brother is not a shareholder. Since then, the act allowed for every corporation to create new shares of class, new classes of shares, sorry, um, as of 1991. And some corporations have done that. I think it's the minority. What's happened is there's been... um, you know, shares get passed on and um, they can also be gifted. So it's not necessarily the case anymore that the shares are 100% owned by indigenous people um, or in our case, Bering Straits is actually a pretty diverse corporation. We have um, Inupiaq, Yupik um, and Siberian Yupik. uh, people in our, our, who have traditional lands in our region, so we have uh, at least three different major languages and many dialects that are spoken, but our corporation is no longer solely owned by Indigenous people. When somebody who is non-Indigenous receives shares through uh, either through inheritance or through, I don't think you can even gift, I think you can only inherit if you're non-Native, and then I believe you're not allowed to, to vote those shares. So, the corporation structure is um, we're, we're owned by primarily Indigenous people or descendants of Indigenous people the corporations elect uh, a board of directors and and then management operates most of the corporations. Some of the corporations have become so small um, if they didn't have the opportunity to develop or maybe they did develop and then they've shrunk since then. Some don't actually, there's a few that don't actually operate anymore. But primarily the um, corporations are are run by management um, and management reports directly to the board. So in my role at KUSNU, where I'm the um, president and CEO, I report to the to the board and we have quarterly board meetings. So our our governance structure is through uh, corporate bylaws and then any actions that the board takes.
0: Okay, so do you find that your structure keeps the corporation um, almost insulated from voices that might, for a lack of better words, like uh, non-Indigenous people having increasing sway or anything like that?
2: No, no. Absolutely not. It's taken 50 years to get the corporations to where they are now. I'm getting generalized, right? So this isn't true for every single case. But in general, you know, these corporations were stood up without any prior experience with capitalism. So it was pretty hit or miss. And the corporations that fared the best were the ones where there were quite a few um, natural resources that could quickly be exploited. And in that case, let's say in the southeast where I am right now, there were already timber, you know, corporations in existence here, and, and other other corporations that existed here. So when corporations were stood up for the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act, they could bring in people who had business experience, and so they were they were afforded the opportunity to quickly um, start operating. Uh, sometimes that meant hiring people who were non-Indigenous because they happened to have more experience with running corporations. Some of the corporations in other parts of the state hired outside experts, I'll put in air quotes, and didn't do so well and were taken advantage of, um, were put into, you know, poor, you know, businesses that weren't a good match for whatever reason, so it's not Uh, the case that having a corporation that is 100% owned by Indigenous people means that we have effectively become independent of um, colonial or settler influence. Uh, We borrow heavily. I mean, to this day, right now where I work, we have excellent consultants that we hire and work with who do mean well and do have the best interests of the shareholders. You know, we do a good job of vetting the consultants that we work with, and that's our intention anyway, right? But in the past, it hasn't always been that we've had the best people in the state of Alaska working for the best interests of the shareholders. A lot of times you end up hiring people who say one thing and do another, and their their best interests are their own interests.
0: Thank you so much for clarifying on that. And yeah, Clint, um, how what is the shareholding structure for your corporation?
3: So historically, we've had a trust, an UNICE trust. So we had trustees, of which I'm one of them. And there were individuals essentially representing um, the regions and the interests of their respective citizens or beneficiaries, ultimately. So the so the beneficiaries of the trust were, as I had mentioned before, the beneficiaries of uh, all of the Nunavut land claim and uh, a trust has a certain lifetime and so in this particular case the trust itself uh, was looking at a period of winding down over twenty-year, 21-year time frame of being in existence. And so we're taking uh, advantage of that to make sure that what we're doing is having a much more engaged level of um, ownership so that the ownership structure itself better reflects the current corporate governance that we have in place with the other regional development corporations. But yet it's still there for the benefit of all Inuit um, who are benefic- uh, beneficiaries under the Nunavut land claim, excuse me. So rather than having a trust structure with trust, uh, and you're following along the lines of, you know, trust rules, Um, accounting requirements for both uh, a trust, plus your corporation, different governance, different structure. It just made it very um, not so um, efficient or effective. And at the end of the day became quite expensive. However, what we did was we uh, were able to distribute our common shares, which ultimately is your ownership of your company uh, from our trust to um, our three regional Inuit associations, which are from the East, from the center, uh, central part of Nunavut and to the west. Uh, Kikittani Inuit Association in the east, Kivalik Inuit Association in central Nunavut, and Cor- um Inuit Association in the west. Um, the shares were distributed based upon uh, population, so most going to the east. And from there, um, it, it sort of justified why we would actually have the presidents of the Inuit Development Corporations on our board, because um, they would be speaking on behalf and representing the interests of uh, Nunavumiut, but in particular, the Inuit who are beneficiaries under the land claim. I have to say it is rather unique and uh, everything that I've done in terms of advocacy, as well as research um, around governance is you normally, and even the Harvard Project on American Indian Economic Development, what it would normally do is that it would, it, it took the position that you'd separate business from politics. And so despite the fact that we actually have three uh, presidents of three political bodies within Nunavut who are on our board, we also have the three CEOs of the regional dev corps, which are essentially owned, like each regional dev corp is owned by a regional Nui association and we also have the chairs of the board of directors of that so you have out of nine board members you have six who are essentially technicians for the most part uh, with a deep experience and expertise in business um, and we're not to say that we're muting the influence of politics in fact the value that our Inuit presence bring to the board um, is significant uh, ensuring that the voice of Inuit are, are heard and the dynamics of what's happening in the respective communities and regions uh, come to the forefront for uh, the issues that we're dealing with. So it's, uh, it is a unique structure. Um, it, we don't have shares that would go to each individual beneficiary, but rather the shares are to the organization, which as i mentioned, represents the interest of Inuit uh, within Nunavut.
1: Well, that's incredibly interesting. I think, yeah, the relationship between government and business is a very pertinent topic. Um, for this and also the history of the state um, interacting with these Indigenous communities as sort of Debbie touched on is incredibly interesting. And I think there's a lot of sort of historical um, legacy that definitely we see until today effects um, of our understanding of it. So I appreciate both and I'm very grateful that we have two different perspectives um, from two different geographical locations so we can learn more about sort of the Canadian approach and the American approach and how that all works out. But Clint, I sort of wanted to Ask you more about what you're ending off with there. Um, about does this sort of unique model of Indigenous development corporations pose any particular challenges of note?
3: So so I mean there's logistical challenges, right? So we represent all of Nunavut. And so there's always a challenge for getting people together at times. And you know, we don't have the greatest infrastructure. I mean, these are just issues that I think anybody who represents a, you know, either a national organization or a pan-territorial organization, they experience. Um, and so, you know, it's a big old territory being Nunavut, um, you know, representing almost you know, one-third of Canada's landmass and uh, 25 communities, right? So so the logistics of it can be a bit of a challenge. Uh, it's a larger board, so about nine people on the board. Um, as I'd mentioned, some of the other dev corps usually between five to seven people. So you actually have, uh, arguably, you can say it's a little bit more nimble decision-making, but to be quite frank, since I've been here, and we've had uh, four board meetings, that it's the—I don't think people are really concerned about making a decision. They make the decision and they move on, which is pretty effective. And I don't see the political influence any more than what I see in my role on other boards. So I'm on the board of a, a chartered bank in Canada, and um, it's a federally regulated um, industry, and so we don't necessarily talk Big P politics, but we talk about the regulatory environment, we talk about, you know, um, the relationships we need to forge, um, the requirements we need to meet, and it's all within the context of public policy and government and so um, I find my board um, does the same sort of thing, no one is, you know, pushing me to hire somebody because they're a brother or whatever. Like nothing like that happens. My board seemed to be they're exceptionally professional, sophisticated, and despite the fact three of them are politicians, um, they're very engaged and and they understand the technical issues as well too. So other than the real big logistical challenges, I uh I don't I don't see any major any major challenges or any major problems for for governance. Yeah, thanks
1: for answering. Yeah, I can see how the the wide geographical range could definitely pose a, a difficulty
2: logistically
1: um, Debbie, do you have anything that you could add to that
2: I think we have we have slightly different uh, situations We I feel like from listening to Clint um, we have a scale we have a difference in scale yeah. is that right Clint yeah. you you're like you, you're like a hundred thousand you're dealing with yeah and at the most, in my experience with Bering Straits, we we don't even have ten thousand yet that we're dealing with, so um,
3: ten thousand members, you mean? Or, mm-hmm. oh yeah, so no, we're yeah, we're not a hundred thousand, so it's more like thirty six thousand, but
2: quite a bit bigger. So in theory, right now in investment circles, one of the big topics, and this comes up from time to time, it's not new, but the ESG, right? So in theory, we have 50 years of experience of these for-profit corporations that are by their nature, uh, those are very important, the, the protecting the environment, because these are our homelands. Um, any, any development that happens there, it needs to be, we need to minimize the impact or have no impact on traditional subsistence living. So that has put us in in conflict with some of our greatest opportunities here. Uh, So in some ways, I think that the people in the Arctic Slope region of Alaska have been a very good example of being good stewards for doing very, they were very thoughtful in getting involved with development. They have benefited economically, but they have not given up their traditional and subsistence food gathering, their hunting and gathering. They have a very active uh, whale hunting season still. They they have been impacted by the development that they chose to participate in. They do both, they have development uh, and they still continue to practice uh, whale hunting. They do have the benefit of using more modern methods so that they can go further and further afield as the environment changes, climate changes happen. Uh, they have to travel further out. Um, so technology is helping them with with being able to pursue that. But um, I feel like we we should be the very model of ESG. Whether or not we are, that remains to be seen. I do think the Arctic Silver region is a good example of being able to have um, do development that is extraction and to still maintain um, healthy animal populations that we depend on for our food sources. The caribou um, migration happens year in, year out. I worked in the Prudhoe Bay oil fields in the um, 90s for about three and a half years. I saw it with my own eyes, at, you know, the development there has been very, very responsible. And that's, um, I think, thanks in no small part to the Arctic Slope Regional Corporation and the village corporation there, like Utqiagvik. I think the village corporations, um, In particular, they work really, really closely with the community.
1: So what could you say about how this model could work for other for-profits
2: more generally? I think the activism, having a sense of ownership, that's something that I would like to see happen in larger society. So, for instance, when there were some protests going on around um, the Dakota Access Pipeline. So I'm neither for or against the Dakota Access Pipeline. It's not in my area. I don't like to take stands on other people's traditional lands you know i respect their choices that was a choice that the people there made right and when people started piling on and getting uh, behind that issue of um, being against it and trying to impact it one of the things that i would say is you as a shareholder have responsibilities i feel that as a shareholder in my village native corporation which is the village native corporation of Nome, it's called sickness and as a shareholder of Bering Straits Native Corporation, I feel that because we make a decision in what businesses we get into, and there are consequences. And one of the things that have has happened in, um, in the US um, model of trading and being shareholders, and, and if you're in the US and you're listening to this and you have any money in a 401 k plan or in a pension fund, You probably have shares in corporations like large banks who may be taking actions around the world that you may not be aware of. And so one of the things that you can do if you want to be a thoughtful member of how our society operates and impacts the the planet and indigenous people or the environment or climate or animals is to really pay close attention to what funds your money is in. Because even if you only have a little bit of money in a fund, in the aggregate, you're part of a very important part of what is driving everything that's happening in investments globally. We collectively, we have, you know, we fund and we drive what people like Fidelity is investing in. And people, I think, need to be more thoughtful about that, not to just go, oh, it's that time of year. And I'll speak for uh, someone who, I don't have a 401k program where I work now, but I have been in this situation in the past. Oh, it's that time of year again. I just fill out this 401k program. I don't know where my money is. It's no, what does it have to do with me? Well, it actually, what does it have to do with wherever those corporations, those large corporations, do you have money in extractive you know, corporations that are doing extractive um, mineral resource development. Are you for or against that? If you're against that, then make a decision and be more thoughtful about where your money is invested.
0: You mentioned uh, the relationship that we have with like financial institutions. And so I I wanted to direct this um, question to Clint. Um, Having been in that world, we've been having conversations and like we're we're learning that financial institutions are boycotting the Arctic um, within the context of ESGs. And what they're doing are using ESGs as a way of justifying or like morally explaining the reasons why they're removing um, investments from the Arctic. And so we were wondering if you had a more personal or more like intimate understanding of the situation um, and if this is the case.
3: So I think some of these international financial institutions primarily um, view the Arctic as a park. I think they view the Arctic as um, a place where nobody lives. Uh, And if they do, that we're so primitive that um, we've been surviving off the land for thousands of years. So why would you want to be interested in any development that would happen within those regions? I think it's a very short-sighted view. I think it's a view that um, is driven more by social media platforms and uh, popularity as opposed to really taking the time to understand what that region is Who lives there, what the goals and aspirations of the region are, and how much of an asset that region is to the entire planet. It's very simple for somebody in Frankfurt to say that we're not going to do any drilling in the Arctic and we're going to divest all of our holdings of any company that is doing drilling or any kind of extractive activity within that region when they have broadband, they have reliable energy, they have reliable heat, they have food security. It's very simple for all of them to be able to do that when in fact, as Debbie had mentioned, our companies uh, and my company have been around since the 70s and all the other regional dev corps have been around um, and other Inuit dev corps have been around since the early 80s to mid 80s. Um, I think we personify those companies that represent the best of the best around ESG. Uh, We're not perfect, we're people, we make mistakes. We made investments in some businesses that, you know, wasn't the greatest when it came to, you know, uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions, or, you know, we're involved in mining, which um, can have some challenges at times. Um, But at the end of the day, our companies are set up in a way where we have to operate in a manner that provides remarkable respect for the environment because our beneficiaries and our managers, our board directors, they're out on the land whenever they have the time. Um, Just a funny anecdote, this past pandemic year, uh, obviously in Nunavut, very few people traveled south. Uh, Certainly nobody on my board of directors who are uh, domiciled in the far north traveled south. And they thought it was the most wonderful summer that they had <laughs> because they had a chance to get out on the land and every, every moment they had with their families. And so they weren't stuck on a plane flying to Edmonton or going to Toronto or going to Ottawa. And so the environment is synonymous with the work that we do and it's synonymous in many respects to the identity of an Indigenous person, um, social. Um, so the one thing that um, I find frustrating um, and I do get nervous that Um, ESG is going to be not necessarily a flash in the pan, but it's an articulation now that is becoming popular. And companies are actually saying, oh, we've been doing ESG all along, when in fact, I think if you start to peel the onion, you'll see that there's a different narrative there. For Debbie's Corporation, for my corporation, for the corporation I served on the board for, as I said, environment is critical. Um, Our interest as Indigenous people, as Inuit, uh, extends beyond the S of ESG. Um, it's not just social, um, although social is a critical part of it in terms of the health and welfare of our communities. But there's also governance, issues around governance. Debbie had talked about it, like, what, I mean, making sure that you recognize the responsibility that you have, um, I would say as a board member, as a trustee, and ultimately as a shareholder. And so that you have that responsibility to communicate and to direct. Um, either directly or indirectly, the strategy of a corporation and where it's going to start to focus in its energy. I would extend that as well, and uh, I'd like to have Debbie um, chime in on this as well. In terms of um, the capital that many Indigenous communities, regions, organizations, usually political bodies, have been able to accumulate over the last 40 years. so. by my calculation which is probably conservative uh, indigenous communities so these are inuit across the country as well as first nations and 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 metis in canada collectively through the resolution of land claims through economic activity through uh, other types of partnerships and relationships they would have with government they would have an excess of about $13 to $14 billion of capital. So think about that, $13 to $14 billion of capital are now invested in the open market and they're governed predominantly by a trust structure on how that money is being managed. Uh, in fact, Nunacy, we're going through our own process, we're not um, governing by a trust, but rather we're, we're going to be governing our investment activity through an investment policy statement. and. So many, it's starting to change, but in the past, um, so many trustees, so many communities, so many regions um, were far removed as to where that money was being invested. And we're starting to see a bit more activity as a result of different efforts by national Indigenous organizations to bring awareness to Uh, trustees and community members who have that responsibility as to where their hard-earned capital, it's their sovereign wealth fund essentially, is being invested. And we're seeing some communities start to raise concern over investments in uh, companies that do bottled water, pipelines, um, exploitation of the forestry, and and so on, right? And so, actually starting to see a much more um, uh, methodical and systematic approach to uh, influencing how how that money is being invested. You still wanna have that separation to ensure that your investment manager can do this and do it in a way that's independent, but he or she will have to be guided by the values of the community. And um, based upon some of the work I've done with the banks and with other indigenous communities, it's um, unfortunately you see that misalignment at times between the values of the community and where that capital is being invested. And that's you see that sometimes as well with development corporations and the activity that they're engaged in as well. So I support exact, 100% what, what Debbie talked about, particularly around ESG, how ESG is now this new thing. Uh, we've been doing it for decades, right? It's, it's a part of who we are. Um, when I grew up and went to do my undergrad in business, you know, the, the purpose of the corporation was the maximization of shareholder wealth. And that, uh, while we do want to generate returns uh, to our shareholders for NUNASI, we, uh I'd like to say that we're generating responsible returns to ensure that we understand what the values of the community are and how we do this in a way that's, uh, that's responsible and, and prudent.
1: Yeah, I think it is interesting, sir, of how at least I've been noticing the use of ESG, CSR, definitely sort of seen as buzzwords um, used by a lot of companies and sort of with the expectation that maybe people won't be actually researching, to see what the company is actually doing or anything like that. So it's really interesting to see how your corporations sort of actually do align <laughs> with these initiatives. Um, and you've obviously demonstrated that today. Thank you again for taking the hour to help us because I know your both of your time is incredibly valuable and we really appreciate hearing directly from you. Um.
0: To wrap, like wrap everything up, uh, we want to know if anybody like, you know, walked up to you on the street and asked you what the most pressing issue in the Arctic is, what would you say?
2: I mean, I think we're a little behind it. The- Canadian infrastructure when it comes to high-speed internet, but right now the most pressing thing is even though we have a few communities still that don't have running water, I would put keeping uh, pace with technology, giving communities high-speed internet so that students can keep up.
3: I would say the same thing. I, I think it's the investment, um, certainly what we see in Nunavut and other parts of the Nunanet, which is the Inuit homeland in Canada. It's just that lack of basic investment in infrastructure, right? So you still have so many communities on boil water advisories. So if you don't have clean water, you're not healthy. If you don't have housing, you're not healthy. If you don't have internet, it's a barrier to entrepreneurialism, education, telehealth. The ability to run your government, like you, you, you need that. It's it's is difficult to conceptualize how one region of the world is dark and it's the Arctic, right?
2: This has been This has been so interesting. Thank you so much to you both for working with us and our schedules so that we could meet and talk. Uh, I would have never had such an interesting conversation. I would have never known so much as I, I do now now, which I feel I could just scratch the surface, but I look forward to maybe we can do more together in between Canada and Alaska on this topic.